Welcome to Weekends. Anna Kasparian and Nando Vila with you. Cale Brooks on the ones and twos. He'll be joining Ooh. us later in the show to do uh, some super chats with you guys. So like the stream, share the stream, send in your super chats. Now's the time. Nando, how are you? Doing well. Doing well. I'm feeling fresh. I'm enjoying the Euros. Spain qualified for the semifinals yesterday in very exciting fashion. It was very dramatic. It was very nail-bitey, uh, but I'm riding high. Uh, so, yeah, I'm feeling good. How exciting. Uh, who was who was Spain playing again? Switzerland. Um, so, you know, which has been kind of a bit, a bit of the fairy tale of the tournament because they eliminated France, who were the heavy favorites, after being 3-1 down with 10 minutes to go. And they tied it up in the last minute and then won on penalties. Um, but then Spain Damn. beat Switzerland also in penalties. Um, again, very, very nerve wracking for me yesterday. I felt like I aged 25 years. But uh, but yeah, um, feeling good. Feeling good you now. Gotta, Semifinals against Italy, baby. You got to believe in your people, you know? They, they poked holes in the Swiss. That's, That's what right. they do. Oh! <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, man. All right. Well, we've got a great show for you guys. Uh, we are going to share some of this um, audio of an Exxon lobbyist, uh, basically sharing all the goods, how they do their dirty work, how the sausage is made behind the scenes. Uh, Professor Harvey Kay will be joining us for a discussion about America what America stands for. Uh, obviously, it's 4th of July weekend, so we're going to discuss um, a little about the nation's history, but more importantly, you know, the vision that we see for the future. And I'm really excited about Nando's segment because I've been waiting for a deep dive into the collapsed condo situation in Miami. There are a lot of updates to share with you guys on that. And I'm going to talk about hustle culture and this gentleman named Gary V, who some of you might be familiar with on YouTube, he's uh, quite the character. Um, mm-hmm. But before we get to all of that, uh, why don't we do our Exxon segment? Because I think it's, I mean, it's just a, a reinforcement of what we already knew. And it has a lot to do with the infrastructure package as well. So let's do it. So Greenpeace UK interviewed a current senior Capitol Hill lobbyist for Exxon Mobil, And... The individual being interviewed, by the way, has no idea that he's talking to Greenpeace. He's under the assumption that he's speaking to a headhunter in the pursuit of a new job, a better paying job. And so the lobbyist's name is Keith McCoy, and he disclosed Exxon's uh, efforts in basically defeating Biden's infrastructure bill. Let's watch. Mr. McCoy revealed that behind the scenes, the company has been working hard to undermine President Biden's $2 trillion infrastructure plan. The White House proposal included spending hundreds of billions on clean energy and transport as part of the most ambitious clean energy legislation ever proposed by a U.S. president. And it would have been paid for by higher taxes on corporations like Exxon. But these ambitious proposals are on the verge of being defeated. According to Mr. McCoy, Exxon has been working to scale back the legislation and stop Exxon paying more tax. He told us which United States senators the company sought to recruit to their lobbying campaign. And they're not all Republicans. 
we're playing defense because President Biden's talking about this big infrastructure package and he's going to pay for it by increasing corporate taxes. You stick to highways and bridges, then a lot of the, the negative stuff starts to come out because right. for you guys because there's it's there's a germaneness right there's this it, it, that doesn't make any sense for a highway bill why why would you put in why would you put in a uh, uh something on uh, uh emissions reductions on climate change uh to oil refineries in a highway bill i mean those were the exact lines parroted by Republicans and conservative Democrats in the Senate, right? Like, no, we just want hard infrastructure. Why would we make it such a comprehensive, robust piece of legislation? Let's water it down. Yeah. No, that's a it's a pretty remarkable it's a pretty remarkable get, uh, to be honest. I mean, it's 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 a mask off moment, right? It's 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 the things we all know happens behind the scenes. So like this idea that, you know, like it's the it's the Casablanca line, you know, I'm shocked. I'm shocked that there's gambling in this establishment. But, uh, you know, that uh, it's still it's still worth reminding yourself that it's not just all in your head, that it's it's, it's true. Like we you know, this is this is what. This is what lies behind uh, the facade that is our politics. Absolutely. And I feel like oftentimes when you bring up this point, the very clear corruption that takes place in our system. And by the way, everything ExxonMobil does, as far as we know, is legal, right? The bribery that takes place, the lobbying that takes place, it's all within the system, which means the system needs to change. Um But sometimes I feel like whenever you bring these issues up, I certainly get this feel whenever I'm doing interviews on legacy media outlets or whatever. They they treat you like you're being conspiratorial. But I mean, come on. Right. Okay. so let's let's get to where Keith McCoy decides to name names in regard to members of the Senate who Exxon has been lobbying hard against the infrastructure bill. Who's the crucial guys for you? Well, Senator Capito, who's the ranking member on Environment and Public Works. Joe Manchin, I talk to his office every week, and he is the kingmaker uh, on this because he's a Democrat from West Virginia, which is a very conservative state, and, and he's not shy about sort of staking his claim early yeah. and completely changing the debate. So on the Democrat side, we look for the moderates on these issues. So it's the mansions, it's the cinemas, it's the testers. Exxon is even trying to get through to President Biden through his friend, Senator Chris Coons. Other ones that aren't talked about is Senator Coons, who's from Delaware, who has a very close relationship with Senator Biden. So we've been working with his office. Matter of fact, our CEO is talking to him next Tuesday. Then you you take it out a little bit more and you say, okay, well, who's up for re-election in 2022? That's Hassan, that's Kelly. It's amazing. I mean, it's it's yeah. exactly what we suspected. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and again, I mean, it's just it's just the the often it's not even it doesn't have to be that corrupt of an arrangement in the in the way that we think about it. Like, you know, here's a bag of cash. You know, you do. It's just the fact that they're like in their ear all the time. You know, like he just, he said he spoke to Senator to Senator Manchin's office every week, every week. Every week. Like they have like a <laughs> weekly either. standing call. Yeah. Like what do they have like on the calendar? They have like a week, you know, t- Tuesday at 10, I got my Exxon uh, check-in. You know what I mean? My weekly Exxon check-in. I mean, it's just the fact that they're 
you know, we're human, you know, like we, we establish relationships with people that we're, that we're around all the time. And whether we like it or not, that kind of those social bonds um, mm-hmm. are also very powerful and important. I mean, just it's really just the fact of who these people are talking to um, every day, besides the, you know, the systemic um, corruption of just the massive amounts of cash that are sloshing around the system. But like that aspect of it is, is as well is like, you know, these people are talking to these people all the time. They're just they're just part of their milieu. You know, like a, a, the lobbyist for ExxonMobil can call up any senator he wants um, at any time and they'll pick up the phone. You know, the lobbyist totally. for, you know, the Sunrise Movement, just to put like the the, you know, the opposite side of the ledger. Yeah, they're not getting through to any senators, um, maybe outside of Bernie Sanders. Yeah, no, I'm 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 glad that you mentioned the social component of it because it immediately reminded me of how it works in the context of White House reporters, right? I mean, like what do people think the whole purpose of the White House correspondence dinner is? It's not yeah. to do anything other than create this like friendly bond between uh the White House and the very individuals who are supposed to be holding them accountable through their reporting. It's a lot harder to hold uh the White House accountable if you're going to these fancy parties that you don't want to be disinvited to uh, in the future, you know? So I think that plays a big role. You see that, that, you see the money, it's very clear, and then you see the the social structures as well that um, kind of perpetuate bad reporting and, and bad behavior in Congress. Um, so I do want to go to that final video, though, um, because... We also have to be careful in how these corporations position themselves as the good guys, because oftentimes they advocate for things that sound good, but they do it knowing that the possibility of these good laws or good um, proposals are are just not going to ever happen. So here's a specific example. Nobody is going to propose a tax on all Americans. And the cynical side of me says, yeah, we kind of know that, but it gives us a talking point. That we can say, well, what is ExxonMobil for? Well, we're for a carbon tax. What you said was just really interesting. So, what? So, it's basically never going to happen, right? Is the calculation? Yeah. No, it's not. It's not going. Carbon tax isn't going to happen. So this helps me understand a little bit why suddenly a lot of car- a lot of U.S. oil majors are talking about a carbon tax because it sounds pretty. Uh, well, I, 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 I. I, I the cynical side of me they've got nothing else it's an easy talking point to say um look i'm for a carbon tax so that's the talking point that that is a in my mind an effective advocacy tool it's an effective advocacy tool yeah i mean it's it's fascinating that they what they'll do is like just Oh, yeah, we propose a tax on all Americans, a carbon tax, which, you know, as we saw um, with something like the Yellow Vest movement in France, uh, you know, putting like a, a gas tax or a tax on on, on everyone um, to, to fix climate change is obviously very unpopular. I mean, the, the reality should be like the, the, you, you tax the, the, the rich, right, the people who are most responsible for climate change. But they know that they don't I mean they know that if they propose a carbon tax, which sounds like they're you know, we propose this radical solution to climate change. Like, why don't you guys do it? Because they, they know that they're just it's a poisoned it's a poisoned pill from the beginning. Um, pretty fascinating to just see like their their thinking on the inside it's just like it's 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 pretty wild 
And it also kind of flies in the face of this talking point that you hear from um, pro-capitalists, which is, no, I mean, um, the market is rational. And so if there's this movement toward green energy, well, these companies are going to adapt. And it's amazing how little interest they have in adapting, right? Like, rather than okay, this is where the future is. Let's actually invest in the development of, uh, you know, the equipment necessary for renewable energy, whether it be wind turbines or solar panels. They're like, no, no, we're going to, we're just going to keep funding politicians and influencing politicians to push back against it. Right. They're not interested in innovation. They're interested in basically rigging this system to their advantage. So we don't innovate. So we don't adapt and we just keep the status quo. Um, so, I mean, it's just, this, this is such a, and by the way, this is a great story on the heels of that leaked mansion audio that the intercept yeah. Ken Klippenstein and Ryan Grimm had reported on, which by the way, got no attention on the national stage. I mean, re political reporters are still reporting on the infrastructure deal as if Joe Manchin is like some good faith actor who's genuinely um, fighting for what he believes is right. And it's like, guys, guys, can you just really look at this and, and, and get to the heart of what motivates and drives yeah. someone like Joe Manchin? He's just a moderate. He's just a moderate, you know? That's <laughs> yeah. just, that's, he's just, <laughs> just a moderate. That's like, I mean, that's what drives me crazy about like this kind of, it's just like, whoa, 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 whoa. There's like a whole bunch of crazies on either side. Like, we're just a moderate, you know? Like, the, there's a learned um, ignorance uh, that comes with being a political reporter. The people who should know how stuff actually works. Like people who are there covering it every day should know how stuff actually works. But in order to be one of those people, you have to perform or, in you know, it's one of those things like they may actually believe all this stuff. And that's why they're there um, of of this kabuki theater that it's all just a totally. battle of ideas. And that there's just moderates and then there's radicals. And then like it's just it's not this is not how it actually works. Right. Like that's just that's not. And but to be a political reporter in those positions, you have to. If not outright believe the fiction, you have to cosplay the fiction. Well, for the reporters who genuinely believe the fiction, maybe we can educate them through a book club membership for Verso. Ooh, wow. That's mm -hmm. a great segue. You know, if these political reporters would just do one thing, they could join the Verso book club and get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one or more books in the mail. All Verso book club members will also get 50% off everything on the website, including the Comrade tote bag, for as long as you are a subscriber. Each member tier is 50% off for your first three months. The Comrade tier is only $20 a month, and if you join in July, you'll get these four books. One Way Street and Other Writings by Walter Benjamin. Feminist Anti-Fascism. Counterpublics of the Common by Iwa Majuska. The Great Adaptation, Climate, Capitalism, and Catastrophe by Roman Feli. And The Tragedy of the Worker Towards the Proletarocene. The Proletarocene by Jamie Allenson, China Mieville, Richard Seymour, and Rosie Warren. Friend of the show, Richard Seymour. We've had him on the show. Yeah, there yeah. Um, that last book looks great. So everyone check it out. Um, and... Enjoy the Verso Book Club. Educate yourselves. Uh, by the way, our audience already does that. But for those reporters who might be checking in, definitely That's check right. out Verso Book Club. 
Um, so Nando, I'm going to mute my mic and sit back and enjoy your segment, which I've been looking forward to since you mentioned that you're going to cover the collapse, the condo collapse in Miami. I think that a deep dive into this topic is so important, especially from a socialist perspective. So take it away. Yeah. And, uh, Anna, and I don't know if you know, and the viewers at home know, but I was born and raised in Miami. Um, so in the last few weeks, seeing my city in the news has been has been pretty a pretty strange feeling because Miami doesn't often make the news and when they do make the when it does make the news it's often for horrible reasons and this week or this past couple weeks um, it's because a condo tower collapsed in the middle of the night leaving over 150 people trapped in the rubble the big story on Action News is the deadly condo collapse in Surfside, Florida. Three people have died and dozens of others were carefully rescued. Security camera video from the adjacent building captured the moment of the collapse. The condo is coming down in two sections within seconds. Well, once the dust settled, this photo taken by first responders puts the gravity of that situation into perspective. 55 units reduced to a pile of debris. And the sight of a building just crumbling down like it was a house of cards left many, many people shocked. But after the shock subsided, I mean, the first thing people wanted to know was, how could this happen? How could a building just fall? I want to start with perspective on how the building likely collapsed in general. The soil conditions, foundation conditions might have been one of the, the reasons for such a failure. When floors drop and pancake, as we saw in this disaster, civil engineers suspect trouble somewhere in the foundation. The, the lower stories lose strength, let's say, and there's no enough capacity to, to, to withhold the structure. Then the, the upper stories, one by one, uh, start pounding down. And in reviewing all the video and pictures of the scene, experts say it looks as if the collapse started around the pool deck. That would line up with a call moments before the collapse in which a witness now missing said she saw a sinkhole where the pool used to be. Engineers say it all supports the theory that the concrete slab beneath the pool caved in first. That would have collapsed into the parking garage, which could have then caused the tower to buckle and crumble. And while the investigation is a long way from finished, engineers say a failure around or beneath the pool deck does appear to have triggered the tragic chain of events. And that draws attention to this engineering report from October of 2018. It warned of a major error in the development of the original contract documents as it relates to the slab beneath the pool deck. The engineer said it was laid flat instead of sloped, which could not provide proper water drainage. And water that had piled up had been deteriorating the slab. The report specifically stated the failed waterproofing is causing major structural damage to the concrete structural slab below and that failure to replace waterproofing in the near future will cause the extent of the concrete deterioration to expand exponentially. The report also found cracks in the parking garage columns and that the previous garage concrete repairs were failing. So how did we get here? I mean, it's it's likely that there will be multiple reasons that factored into the building's ultimate demise, shoddy construction, lax oversight, delayed repairs, but also just the fact that Miami is a city that is on the front lines of climate change. I remember what they said in that report about the pool deck and especially the garage. Well, here's what a former superintendent of the building said about what would happen to the garage when there was high tide. 
And that's when I got a call today from William Espinoza. And William Espinoza was the building superintendent from 1995 through 2000, he said. And this is part of the conversation we had, because he said that as soon as he saw this building go down, he thought about all the water he used to have to deal with in the garage structure. Let's play some of that sound now. Anytime that we had high tides uh, away from the ordinary, any king tide or anything like that, uh, we would have a lot of salt water come in through the bottom of the of the foundation, and we had a huge pit in the garage that would handle two pumps in there to suck you know to suck that water out. But it was so much water all the time that the pumps never could keep up with it. So we always had to be replacing pumps, and uh, the water would just basically sit there, and then it would just seep downward. You know what I mean? It would just go away after a while, and I would think, where did this water go? Because it had to go in through somewhere. I'm talking about a foot, sometimes two feet of water in the bottom of the parking lot, the whole parking lot. And that's the underground parking lot, right? Correct. Correct. And I mean, like I said, the cars would float. That's how much water was in there. They would be floating around in the parking lot. And I go, that's just a lot of water come in here and we don't have a way of getting it out. Now, this was back in the late 90s. In the subsequent 20 years, sea levels have risen even more, causing even more high tides and flooding in the Miami Beach area. And rising tides are an existential threat to all of Miami. That's because in Miami, there is no solution to the problem. You cannot build a levee like you can in other parts of the world because Miami is essentially built on a swamp that sits on top of limestone. So as the sea level rises, the water comes up from the ground. And South Florida must contend with a vulnerability unique to an area with this population density. Miami limestone is one of the most porous limestones anywhere. And water just pours through it very, very, very rapidly. At an excavation pit on the campus of the university, Wanless showed us what the entire region is built on, a geologic sieve of limestone. As sea level continues to rise, in the same way that rainwater disappears, the seawater will just come up. Now, that's not stopping real estate developers in Miami because the money just keeps on flowing, baby. But don't take it from me. Take it from the mouths of the real estate developers themselves. I do worry about the sea level rising a little bit, you know? I live on the ocean. I live right on the beach. I see the beach, like, doing its thing. It's a concern. It needs to be addressed, and there's a lot more work that needs to be done. But we're not seeing a lack of flow of capital to South Florida as a result of sea level rise as of yet. You know, we have questions about sea level rise uh, because the media talks about that a lot. But I can honestly say that no one has told me that they have not purchased here because of sea level rise. Sea level rise is something that I'm actually dealing with right now personally. Um, I happen to live in a residential neighborhood where they're trying to raise the streets. Rising sea levels are a real issue confronting South Florida and other coastal cities. However, Americans have a short memory. And those memories don't go from generation to generation. So right now it's a younger generation that's focusing on rising sea level. If sea levels don't wipe out, um, rise and wipe out Miami Beach, it'll be an afterthought. We're building in terms of the worst, worst possible tsunamis. Uh, we're safe for that. So, uh, you know, we take all kinds of precautions in terms of floodgates, 
to the flood barriers. People still want those views. They want to be in areas where they can see the water, and I think that that will continue to drive sales. We we are one of you know we do take sea level you know climate change and so forth and sea level rising you know into consideration when we're developing. Um, I have to say you know like the city of Miami has done a very good job taking a proactive approach and thinking about sea level rise and the impact you know being being on the on the ocean. Regarding sea level rise, I just sold a house to uh, an interesting uh, young tech guy, and he had an opportunity to do some homework on the subject. And what he revealed to me was that he felt that there's a lot being done to counter uh, the sea level rise and a lot of technology that's out there. But of course, we don't hear that in the media. Five years ago, 10 years ago, you never heard about sea level rise. Today, you're starting to hear about it, but it's still distant and it's still in the future. I don't think it's affecting anybody today, but I think as we move on in the next five or 10 years, we're going to need to address it, and I think we are starting to. What is happening is a premium between waterfront properties and non-waterfront properties is narrowing, which is a good thing for urban infill of South Florida, especially Miami. I think there's a concern, and I think people are more reluctant to buy homes, single-family homes that are waterfront and they're thinking twice about the condos on the waterfront. When I first moved here in 1997, we always were dealing with flooded streets. Did it get a little bit worse? Yes, a little bit. But nothing, I don't think, for us to panic over. If we're going under, so is New York and the rest of the East Coast, in my opinion. I mean, I I don't know about you guys, but that's one of the most insane videos I've ever seen. I mean, it's like a tag yourself situation. Which one's your favorite? Whether it's the the guy who's like, I talked to a tech guy who said there's like all kinds of solutions coming and the media doesn't want to talk about it. Or or the guy who's like, hey, if we're going under, so is New York. That's great. You love it. Real estate speculation is what makes Miami tick. It has from its very inception. Most major cities are built because they sit on some strategic location, a major port or a river for the sake of some industry. Miami was built purely because it was a pretty good place to make money on real estate speculation. And to understand just how crazy it is that there is even is a major city on Miami Beach where the Champlain Tower was located, it's worth looking at back at what Miami Beach looked, used to look like before it was developed. Sailing from Key West in 1870, Henry Lum and his son Charles saw coconut palms swaying on what is now Miami Beach. They bought land from the federal government for 25 cents an acre and built the beach's first home. It was a barrier peninsula, not even an island. Not until the early 1920s, when a cut was made at Baker's Hall over. It had tall mangroves on the bayside. The interior was concave, and it collected a lot of water. There were mangroves in the interior. It was a swamp. And the ocean side was a windswept beach. And it needed a lot of work to make it what it became. It needed a lot of work to make it what it became. And the man who did the work to make Miami Beach what it became was a guy named Carl Fisher, who dreamt of a beachfront city for the rich and famous. The Collins clan from New Jersey envisioned a southern Atlantic city. Fisher, on the other hand, saw the beach as a winter retreat for the rich and famous. His vision early on was a place where these Gilded Age princes like himself could have big estates. And many of them were like him. They came out of a hard scrabble background. And now they had money and they were throwing it around. An army of engineers descended on the beach with heavy equipment to clear the land. Even a couple of elephants to help with the heavy lifting. 
dredges deep in channels and filled in the swamps. Then he pumped in bay bottom in order to fill in that concave area and to eliminate the chance of water collecting again. And so now you're ready. You've got the stage. So there you go. A city built by elephants on top of a drain swamp with sand poured in from the ocean floor to fill the concave pool of water in the middle. You don't have to be a structural engineer to understand that that isn't exactly the most stable place to build. But that hasn't stopped developers from turning that part of the world into a playground for the global glitterati, a trend that has only increased dramatically in recent years with the opening of these new mega clubs like Live, Story, and especially one called Eleven, which is a sort of giant nightclub slash strip club, check out that innovation, that is literally open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. This is Young Joe from the greatest establishment. It's your boy Jake Paul. You already know we're at Club 11. My name is Aiden Ross. We're at 11 right now in Miami. About to go crazy. We're back home. We're 11. It really is a sight to behold. If you haven't been to 11, go there before Miami sinks. Now, this trend to make Miami a playground for the rich has been embraced by the city's mayor, Francis Suarez. He has self-consciously encouraged the move to make Miami a sort of East Coast version of Las Vegas meets Silicon Valley, but with an international flavor. Come on down, Miami open for business. Bubbling of activity and excitement and optimism. Not just because of the taxes, but because of the culture of innovation. When the venture capitalist Delian Asperuhov suggested on Twitter last December that the tech industry should migrate from Silicon Valley to Miami, Mayor Francis Suarez responded, how can I help? He also set up a billboard in San Francisco. Thinking of moving to Miami? DM me. Soros's bold, roll-out-the-red-carpet approach to luring away Silicon Valley's tech elite has gotten so much attention in part because of how it contrasts with that of California's ultra-left political class. Take San Diego Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez, who's best known for her failed effort to stop Uber and Lyft from using contract labor in California to benefit labor unions. Gonzalez tweeted, Fuck Elon Musk, back in May of 2020. Message received, replied Musk, in Miami, Mayor Suarez has embraced Musk's idea of building a $30 million tunnel for electric vehicles to ease congestion. We have a unique opportunity to create uh, a signature project, not just for Miami, but for the world. Suarez's publicity stunts, including fashioning himself an avid Bitcoin enthusiast, have no doubt contributed to the city's momentum. Love to have a mayor that is an avid Bitcoin enthusiast. Now, all of this has fueled an orgy of real estate development in Miami. This is uh, from a Forbes headline in February. South Florida's real estate market is now officially in super boom mode. 
Quote, examples of South Florida's supercharged market are everywhere. More eye-turning than what buyers are willing to pay right now, however, are what the market reveals about buyers themselves and the factors driving them. Case in point, Hot One, Sotheby's agent, Paola Marulanda, recently closed the sale of The Beach House, a 6,000-square-foot, two-story property located in Miami Beach's South the Fifth, or SoFi Boutique Condominium Building Ocean House, with five bedrooms, six bathrooms, two sunrise terraces, one sunset terrace, a movie theater, and a glass and case wine vault and closing a hidden home office the beach house closed for 15 million dollars over 15 million dollars as is all cash over original ask with two backup cash deals in place million dollar listing star and agent chad carroll represented the undisclosed buyer but as we saw with the collapse of the champlain tower near beneath the shiny veneer lies a rotten foundation. And as the Bitcoin bros and Latin American oligarchs fuel Miami's development craze, the brunt is being borne by the working poor. I want to go back to what one of those developers said. What is happening is a premium between waterfront properties and non-waterfront properties is narrowing, which is a good thing for urban infill of South Florida, especially Miami. What he describes as urban infill check out that term, in Miami, is really just rich people displacing poor people. Hernandez owns her mobile home, but rents the land underneath it. The previous landlord kept rent increases low, but in 2018, a new owner, Miami Soar Management Corp., bought the property, and the rent suddenly shot up. What were you paying for rent? We paid 245 before. Every year, they put a $50, $50, $50. Every year. And then they put a $200 suddenly. Uh, That's a lot of a, money. A, a, lot, a lot of people came to pay that. Like me, I came to pay $700 because I am not working. Uh, I am retired. From 2003 to 2018, Hernandez's rent rose from $245 to $500 per month. But then her new landlord raised the rent to $735 a month, a 47% per month increase in under one year. Well, we got wind that last year, the uh, rent had significantly been increased. Some people had less than a week of notification. Sajin Taloui is an activist advocating for residents struggling to afford the rent increases at the SOAR mobile home park. What was the new owner's reasoning for going from 500 to seven, eight hundred dollars. They had stated that they were using the money to make repairs to the homes, to bring it up to code, um, but there hasn't been much of anything done. There's so many hazards. You see the open pipes, broken cement. I mean, if you have kids, they can't even walk around and play here. For decades, housing costs in areas like this have remained low. But as waters rise on the coastal homes of wealthy residents across South Florida, advocates say poor communities are being replaced by high-end properties. What is the state of affairs for people who are living in mobile home parks now in Miami, in greater Miami? In the last four years alone, at least seven mobile home parks have closed down in Miami-Dade County. Um, there used to be 60 parks in 2015. Now it's down to 53 and about 700 housing units have been lost. 
The average Miami resident pays a higher percentage of their income on housing than in any other city in America. This is from an article in the Miami New Times, quote, an analysis by Apartment List shows 62.7% of renters in Miami are cost burdened, the highest percentage of the nation's 100 largest metro areas. Nearly 34% of Miami renters spend half of their income or more on housing. Florida leads the nation in housing unaffordability, the study shows. The Sunshine State has the highest cost burden rate with a 56.5% of renters spending 30% or more of their income on housing. In Miami, keeping a roof over your head can mean staying in your parents' home longer than desired or living with a revolving door of roommates. It also means competing for housing against millionaires and billionaires. But back to the Champlain Tower. The building was built in 1981. Now, the early 80s in Miami had a lot of similarities to the current moment. At the time, there was a massive construction boom driven in part by deregulation. This is, an, this is from an editorial in the Miami Herald. Quote, we are holding our elected officials accountable for a thorough, honest, and urgent investigation into the causes of this still unfolding tragedy to determine what caused it. But we do know a lot about the way the construction was done in South Florida in 1981 when this condo was erected. Condominium construction was red hot then, fueled in part by what would turn out to be a disastrous deregulation of the nation's savings and loans associations. We know that building codes for single-family homes during that era were weak, and enforcement was lax, something that became terribly apparent when Hurricane Andrew roared through southern Miami-Dade County. We know that even though entire neighborhoods were flattened, the homes that stood up best to the Category 5 storm winds turned out to be the ones where developers spent more money to build stronger homes. And the other thing that was fueling the early 80s construction boom in Miami, cocaine, literally. Drugs destroy a community when you're dealing with street level. When you're talking about drug dealing on a level where major drug dealers are living here, vacationing here, buying homes, uh, laundering their money and so forth, that picks up the economy of a, of a city or of a community. And a lot of the money secretly did go into infrastructure. $2.3 billion worth of construction is currently underway in downtown Miami. The general construction and, and everything are in downtown and on Brickle. Downtown Development Authority officials say another billion dollars worth of construction will be in progress within the next six to eight months. It built half the city. It built the high-rises. It built the scrapes. This building boom, they say, will last for the next ten years. The drug trade saved Miami in a lot of ways. If you look out at this skyline, a lot of this real estate was, was built or bought and paid for with drug money. This new construction means at least 25,000 additional jobs and an annual payroll in the millions. The new condominiums, office buildings, and banks will add an additional $20 million to the city of Miami's tax base. In the next few months, we'll see a lot of investigations into what exactly happened at Champlain Towers. There will be people who say it was one thing or another. There will be a furious debate as to how much climate change played a role, as if you could ever quantify that. Some people will blame the original builder. Others will blame the city of Surfside. Others will blame the condo owners themselves who put off much needed repairs because they were so expensive. But at the core of all of this is capitalism. And the fact that housing, one of the essential necessities for human life, is subjected to market logic and treated as a vehicle to make money. In a system where housing is treated as a commodity, there will always be a housing crisis for the vast majority of people. 
As Marx's buddy Engels wrote, quote, as long as the capitalist mode of production continues to exist, it is folly to hope for an isolated solution to the housing question or of any other social questioning affecting the fate of workers. It will simply never be as profitable to build housing for poor people as it is to build housing for rich people. A lot of the upfront costs are similar, but the potential profits for low-income housing are way, way lower than for high-end real estate. And in the pursuit of profit, developers are incentivized to lower building costs as much as possible, not to make sure that the building is still standing in the long run, at which point, as John Maynard Keynes said, we're all dead. In the short term, we need government reforms like the Green New Deal, which would not only attempt to stop the worst effects of climate change, but crucially invest public money in shoring up our nation's literally crumbling infrastructure and retrofitting buildings to make them more efficient and, yes, safe. And in the even shorter term, condo owners should start taking the maintenance of their building way more seriously. Just yesterday, another building in Miami Beach was evacuated. Now to more breaking news, this time out of North Miami Beach, the immediate evacuation of a condominium has been ordered because of what was found in an inspection. CBS4's Bobeth Yates is live on the scene in North Miami Beach with more. Bobeth. Well, Lauren, after the collapse in Surfside, officials are not taking any chances. And here in North Miami Beach, that is exactly the case. Officials received this evaluation earlier today, and they made that tough decision to shut down this complex behind me. Forty years after the neoliberal reaction to the post-war consensus, the chickens are coming home to roost. Our country is literally falling apart. If we don't do something dramatic, at least at the scale of the New Deal in the 1930s, there will be many more tragedies like the Champlain Tower collapse. And just before we went live, we got breaking news that uh, authorities have decided to just demolish the rest of the Champlain Towers because there's a hurricane coming to Miami. um, And they're worried that the the rest of the building will collapse as well. Um, Probably spelling, you know, the end of any search and rescue um, effort, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, this story is so tragic, um, but it's also an important story in in highlighting everything you highlighted. I mean, it's such a comprehensive segment because not only do you touch on the environmental issues involved, but also like the the financial incentives to build these not so stable buildings, right? Uh, you even get, you even get into the the drug money being laundered into these buildings, which I I feel like most news stories on this have completely missed, and it's important to touch on that. But I do want to just quickly um, address like the end part of your segment where you talk about who's to blame and and how the HOA, the homeowners association, it's likely that they're going to get some blame. That's actually the area where I've had a little bit of frustration because the building was built in a terrible way. It had this massive design flaw with the pool deck being built on a flat concrete slab. Mm -hmm. The condo owners had no idea about that, right? They have no idea. It's probably not disclosed anywhere that there's this huge design flaw. And so all of a sudden you get hit with a $15 million repair And we don't know what the economic situation is for like most of those condo owners. So yeah, they pushed back. But the heart of the issue was how the building was built in the first place, why it was built the way that it was built. 
Um, and yeah, the issue of deregulation. I mean, we're seeing the chickens come home to roost in several states right now as a result of deregulation. I mean, you, you have Texas with their um, deregulated and privatized energy grid and how it just completely failed the people of Texas during a winter storm. Uh, you have that colonial pipeline that, you know, provides um gas to 45% of uh, people in the East Coast, and they don't they don't invest uh, in the necessary cybersecurity to ensure that they don't get hacked. I mean, you see it happening over and over again. But the one other thing I wanted to bring up is already we're seeing some states implement policies that are making people panic. Because if you're in Hawaii and you own oceanfront po- property, Um, it's very likely that flooding has become an issue. Uh, Some of these beaches, by the way, have been destroyed because the homeowners have been like putting up these massive sandbags to kind of stop the water from getting to their properties. And so ProPublica just yesterday reported that legislators are going to now require that sellers disclose the risks to the buyers uh, because they hadn't had to do that before. And Mm. clearly, if you're going to disclose that, the likelihood of you being able to sell that house, I mean, it's going to be far more difficult assuming. (laughs) Who knows? Maybe people would be dumb enough to buy those homes anyway. Uh, But yeah, I mean, this is going to have an impact on so many different people, not just those living in the waterfront properties, but yeah, as you mentioned, the people living inland who are now going to be displaced as a result of these rich people flowing into their communities and pushing them out. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just throughout human history, people don't live right on the water for very good reasons. I mean, it's just this is like a new phenomenon, um, like a very, very new phenomenon to, to build kind of major uh, development, like right on the edge of uh, uh, on the water's edge. Um, it's just it's not a very it's not a very safe place to be uh, in general. Um, and with regard to the homeowners association, I mean, I think that you're right. I mean, it's like that that's but that that's where this market logic comes into place where if the responsibility is on for the building safety is on the homeowners themselves, mm-hmm. the, their incentives are completely warped. They're they're you know it's it's it take, costs a lot of money to do this, so like they're just gonna like push it off, push it off, push it off. Especially if they're not like engineers and they're not like you know they don't know like, exactly how, how to. This is why this is a collective problem. The 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 safety of the buildings that exist in the world, even if they're residential buildings, because people coming in and out. Workers are coming in and out. Guests are coming in and out. Like, it is our problem. It is not their problem. It is our problem. Totally. You know, so the, the collective solutions to all these things, all these things should have to be um, in place. Like, it, sh- it, it like if, if a building needs to be repaired, like, it, it should be just funded by the government through taxes. You know, everyone should yeah. pay for it at all, at all times. I mean, it, like, it's the kind of thing that in any individual case, like, yeah, it's like, oh, it sucks. Like, we're subsidizing you know, the repairs for, for, for these rich people. But like, this is what ends up happening is like, they're, they're just not incentivized to do it. You have to force their hand through collective action because like that, I mean, that's, that's what I think is at, at the core of a lot of this is that mm-hmm. the, the role of the government in housing has to be incredibly more active in the United States. Like we cannot just leave it up to private individuals and private developers. Like, if that is a recipe for for disaster, housing is just way too important. Um, it is, it, it's the fundamental thing. You know, it's the thing. I don't know, like, right. outside of food yeah. and water, you know, like, it's the next thing, <laughs> you know? Like, so um, we just, in this country, we just don't see it as, 
that kind of issue. We see it as a totally private issue, and it's not. It's a public totally. issue. Yep. Um, I totally agree. So. I absolutely. And as someone who lives in a condo building, first of all, I'm kind of panicking. I'm not going to lie because. I mean, this is an older building than the one that just collapsed in Miami. Um, we also have a pool deck. So now I'm just like, is the pool yeah. deck on a flat surface flat? or slope surface, right? And you're right. Like the HOA, I mean, I love my neighbors. No no hate. But, well, some of them, a little bit of hate. But most of them, they're great people, right? And But they're not experts on this kind of stuff, right? And so... Typically in HOAs, you are going to deal with a little bit of incompetence and you need everyone to vote on whether or not you're going to take out a loan, otherwise known as a special assessment, to make the repairs that need to be done. There's a lot of pushback every time that conversation comes up. So I totally agree with you. Um, We... As someone who owns a a unit in a building, there's just an inherent conflict of interest when it comes to these matters because it's going to hurt your own finances to pay for the repairs that need to be done. So, which, I mean, I'm always in favor of of paying for the repairs. Uh, Like, it hurts. I get it. But After Hurricane Andrew um, in 1992, which, like, destroyed Miami, uh, people don't really remember it anymore uh, outside of Miami, but it was like it destroyed the whole city. Um, or this a part of the city, um, they passed certain laws that made made it mandatory to have like certain kinds of windows in any new building. Um, they made it, um, they made they made they made you have like flood insurance and, and hurricane insurance. Like that's like a mandatory thing. Um, and it's it's this what I'm talking about. It's like it's because if you if you put it on individuals, like it's too the the costs the costs are so great that um, they're incentivized to just not just not do it. You know, mm-hmm. whereas if you socialize the problem, if you socialize the cost and everyone chips in a little bit to it, um, then you can then you can have a much more coherent solution to the problem. Like you have to expand that to include like, you know, building collapse insurance, uh, you know, like that, that they should just like point, go to yeah. like, yeah, like they should they should like they should make it mandatory for like everyone to chip into to look at every single building in the state or the city or whatever and um, and see if it's going to freaking collapse at any moment, you know? And if it is, like, those repairs should be socialized because if they're privatized, they're just not going to do it. Yeah, I agree. You know, in Hollywood, um, they built a bunch of high-rise towers. I think they're, like, hotels and condominium buildings on a fault line. It's just like, yeah. I mean, it's gonna they don't care. I mean... <laughs> It's going to collapse. If there's a big earthquake in L.A., which is likely to happen sometime in the future, uh, those buildings are definitely vulnerable. And it doesn't matter. I mean, you got Eric Garcetti. He's buddies with developers. Very similar stuff is happening in in big cities like Los Angeles. And it's really disheartening to see it. All right. Well, let's talk about something that's not related at all (laughs) to collapsing (laughs) towers. But um, it is related to uh, a deterioration of our lifestyles, our our personal lives. And it's this whole notion of cancel culture, not cancel culture, hustle culture. It's a different kind of culture. (laughs) So let's (laughs) cancel culture also deteriorating our personal lives and personal relationships. Um, But let's do it. Let's talk about it. So it's 4th of July weekend where Americans grill hot dogs and celebrate America's independence Something that many Americans have been sold under the country's capitalist system is the idea that we independently make decisions about our lives, which can lead to success or, if we make the wrong decisions, 
failure. In fact, if you've spent any time on TikTok or YouTube, you've probably come across this guy. I literally want to die instead of fail. Die, death, over. I do not know how to live in life. I do not know how to live in life. Live in life with an L in business on my resume. You should take defeat personally, period. That's Gary <laughs> Vanderchuk, also known as Gary V. And for the purposes of this segment, I'm just going to keep referring to him as Gary V. He's the most prominent mouthpiece for hustle culture. And it's basically this new age help content or self-help content that serves as uh, a cultural complement to the economic demands of our economic system, capitalism. For middle-class people, it's ideology to help career advance. It's ideology that's meant to help with career advancement. For working-class people, though, it's basically just self-directed, uh, a self-directed explanation for why they can't make it in a horrifically competitive world. Now, the first version of this came in the form of the Protestant work ethic. In the book Brightsided, Barbara Ehrenreich, one of my favorite authors, writes that Calvinist um, Protestants required people to defer gratification and resist all pleasurable temptations in favor of hard work and the accumulation of wealth. Eventually, that religious messaging that justified extremely long working hours and poor working conditions morphed into a more secular version known as positive psychology. As this positive thinking took over and began to replace more logical, analytical approaches to things, focused on the bottom line. And the, uh, the idea had taken hold that we can do no wrong. Housing prices can never go down. The stock market can never go down. And because I think it's right, you know, it will be right, especially if you're the CEO and you're making uh, $20 million a year. And I think that it was, it was, it became like a mass delusion. And, you know, positive thinking is all about, you know, using your mind, your special mental powers to accomplish wonderful things in a capitalist system. And if you fail, it's just that you weren't positive enough. Now, while most people who actually pay attention have noticed that capitalism actually does not lead to more innovation, it does lead to innovation in terms of making sure the propaganda changes as soon as it loses its luster. And as soon as positive psychology lost its luster, uh, it was later replaced with uh, a more modern version known as hustle culture, where we're expected to dedicate nearly every waking moment to working. Hustle culture has a particularly theological quality in that it replaces the role that Protestant religion once had in facilitating a sacrificial work ethic that demonizes the slightest idleness or leisure. Motivational self-help gurus are the new priests, and CEOs are the new gods. The key difference from Protestant Christianity is that rather than hard work merely being a formal duty, hustle culture reinforces an invisible ideology that makes us enthusiastically choose to sacrifice our physical and mental labor for the capitalist system. The invisibility of this rugged individualist capitalist ideology, disguised as harmless self-help, is precisely what makes it so much more effective in maintaining our new society of control. It acts as both a belief system for the capitalist elite to justify their excessive wealth, and also as a subconscious drive that gets citizens to control themselves. 
The rest of that video is excellent, and I highly recommend you guys check it out because it focuses on the psychological component of, of hustle culture messaging. But if you look at all three manifestations, whether it be the Protestant work ethic, positive psychology, or hustle culture, the underlying message and objective is the same. The objective is to perpetuate this myth of personal responsibility. In other words, it's up to the individual to delay gratification and engage in sacrificial labor to accumulate wealth. It's up to the individual to think positively in order to achieve success. It's up to the individual to rise and grind their way to financial wealth. Failure to live well is a personal failure rather than a societal one. Gary Vee actually combines all three manifestations in the content he produces. Watch. Is there's so many people here that are just not patient and you're not paid, you know, the youngsters aren't patient because they have chips on their shoulder because they want to prove to mom and dad that they're right and they're going to do it their way and they, the second they start doing their process, they've got the pressure on them. What, you know, they haven't made it yet. This is all about shortcuts versus the long game. I want to build the biggest building in town ever by just building the biggest building in town while I think most people try to tear down everybody else's building. So I think positivity and good is practical advice to building an empire and I want to be the poster child of the person that built the biggest, baddest empire and did it by being a good dude along the way. You need to outwork the people that have money. There's three variables, three pillars. Time, money, talent. Talent is hard to control. Um, Money you don't have yet. Time is your only friend. What you do between 7 p.m. and 3 in the morning will ultimately probably be the variable of your success. I mean, listen, he's definitely part and parcel of this so-called hustle culture. The thing is, he doesn't actually say anything. He just says a lot of vague nonsense. Anyway, but... There are many downsides to this garbage, like making people think that their economic anxieties or economic issues are due to their own deficiencies rather than being forced to survive in a system where decent compensation and working conditions actually runs counter to maximize profits that capitalists seek. I mean, these are two conflicting things. They're going to continue butting heads. And so hustle culture also attempts to justify employers squeezing as much productivity out of their workers as humanly possible while paying them as little as possible. Hustle culture encourages everyone to keep tabs on each other and ensure maximum productivity. As Chuck McKeever um, actually put it in Jacobin, uh, you're not lazy but your boss wants you to think you are. In the article, um, McKeever actually reviews a book uh, titled Laziness Does Not Exist by Devin Price. And in the book review, he writes that Dr. Devin Price focuses specifically on one aspect of this self-help phenomenon, what they call the laziness lie. According to Price, the laziness lie has three central tenets. Our worth is our productivity. We cannot trust our own feelings and limits. And there's always more we could be doing. So the messaging here is, damn, you are struggling. Your back is breaking. You're you're really, really having a hard time working these incredibly long hours. But this is what you have to do to succeed. And if you don't succeed, it's your own fault. Ignore your body. Ignore your mind. Just keep working. Uh, The article continues to write, 
We internalize this logic to such a degree that we learn to believe that our skills and talents don't really belong to us. They exist to be used. If we don't gladly give our time, our talents, and even our lives to others, we aren't heroic or good, and we're certainly more fireable. And that last line is the important one, because under this system, coercion plays a massive role, right? So if we're being preached to about hustle culture and we have colleagues who buy into hustle culture, that you need to be the first one in the office, the last one out, you need to give the appearance of being the most productive. And it leads to people keeping tabs on each other. I mean, it creates this environment of division in the workplace, right? It, it intentionally prevents the solidarity needed to organize labor, first of all, right? It pits workers against each other because instead of thinking about how we can make better working conditions for all of us, we're actually keeping tabs on each other to see who's working hard enough. Can't stand that. And I think a lot of people experience that in the workplace. We aren't miserable because we aren't working hard enough at happiness. We're miserable because we're all working too hard at everything. What's more, no one seems to believe it, including ourselves. In fact, former disciples of Gary V's Rise and Grind crew actually started to realize there was something hollow about his motivational messaging. When you see him talk, when you hear him talk, when you watch a Gary V video, at the end of it, you're left with this feeling of hope. Okay, and that's good. I mean, you know, he's an expert at what he does, which is become famous and have a social following. If you want to become social famous and have a social following, I would do exactly what he does. Now, the problem with it is that when I was hustling, like Gary Vee likes to call it, all it did was left me tired. Okay, hustling only gets you so far. So what does Gary Vee consider hustling? He thinks you should work 18 hours a day, maybe 20 hours a day if you can. Post on Instagram and YouTube and Facebook about your business all day. And then hopefully an audience finds you. Hopefully an audience finds you. And there's a lot about posting on social media all day if you watch this content on uh, social media and YouTube. Now, uh, going back to Chuck McKeever's book review, he touches on something important toward the end of his piece that I want to focus on. He says, overwork is not just about profit or productivity. It's about control. Companies are incentivized to own as much of an employee's time as possible for what they're paid, whether by extending the salaried work week into nights and weekends or reducing the break time of hourly wage earners. We see that happening all over the place. I mean, think about how uh, labor fought so hard to get us the weekend. I mean, that wasn't something that was just given to American workers. That had to be fought for. Think about how the eight-hour work week, or I'm sorry, eight-hour work day, I should say, was something that needed to be fought for. All of those gains are slowly but surely being reversed right now, and it's being done with the help of this ridiculous hustle culture propaganda. Now, obviously, there's a physical price to pay uh, when we put our bodies through and our minds through this insanely long workday, long work weeks. Um, and a new report by the World Health Organization and International Labor uh, Organization analyzed the health outcomes of people who work 
55 hours a week or more. This was something that Alex Press wrote about in Jacobin. I highly recommend you check out her piece. She writes that in 2016, working 55 or more hours a week resulted in 745,194 deaths, up from roughly 590,000 in 2000. Of these deaths, 398,441 are attributable to stroke and 346,753 to heart disease. This puts those working these hours at an estimated 35% higher risk of stroke and 17% higher risk of heart disease compared to people working 35 to 40 hours a week. So, how, how is that possible, right? I mean, you see that kind of data and you wonder, how could working long hours lead to cardiovascular issues? What's going on? Well, um, the stress of it all does have and does take a physical toll um, on workers. For some, the stress of overwork may cause the body to release excessive uh, stress hormones, cortisol, uh, that trigger cardiovascular problems. For others, the stress may lead to unhealthy habits such as smoking, heavy drinking, a poor diet, a lack of exercise, and bad sleep, which in turn contribute to cardiovascular risk. And by the way, speaking of little sleep, I mean, just check out the content that we're talking about here on YouTube. Uh, There's this big flex going on about how little people uh, can get by with maybe four hours of sleep per night. And that's just not healthy. It's not okay. And we should not allow people to condition workers to buy into that garbage. Alex Press continues to write, a lot of us are exposed to the grind. In 2016, 8.9% of the global population, around 488 million people, worked at least 55 hours per week. I mean, it's just, it's absolutely tragic when you think about these conditions. And it's not just about the United States. I love that Alex uh, also focused on this issue globally because we are a global economy, which is why internationalism in, in responding to the capitalist system is so important. It's really important also uh, to remember that while our living and work standards in the U.S., um, are above much of those in the global South, that wasn't always the case. And I want to, you know, talk about that a little bit. According to a report, for instance, published in 1893 for the Senate Committee of Finance, average weekly hours in American manufacturing in 1850 were a back-breaking 69 hours. So this goes back to what I was saying earlier about how all of these gains, all of these Working conditions um, that we've experienced, whether it's the weekend or the shorter workday, these were gains that had to be fought for. Um, In the steel industry in the United States during this period, men worked 12 hours a day, seven days a week. Transit workers labored seven days a week, 14 hours a day. It was not uncommon for girls working in the laundry industry to work 16, 18, or even 20 hours a day amidst poor ventilation, heat, and dampness. And then, of course, at the legendary homestead mill owned by Andrew Carnegie, workers put in a 12-hour day every single day uh, of the year, with the exception of Christmas, of course, and in a nod to patriotism, the 4th of July. The only alteration of this routine was a swing shift every other week where employees worked 24 hours straight. Yeah, you heard that. Employees worked 24 hours straight the entire day, 
was dedicated to working and people would only get two days off a year um, regularly working these ridiculous 24-hour shifts. It's absolutely insane. But obviously no worker enjoyed this schedule. It was unbelievably grueling, leading to many working people dying prematurely of exhaustion and disease. These conditions were set by capitalist competition, with each individual capitalist pushing their workers to the brink in the pursuit of profit. And the only reason why life uh, isn't still like this in America and other parts of the developed world is because workers were successful in building a labor movement. Working people had to curtail much of how the boss could destroy us in the workplace. That's why we have to, that's why we have the weekend and I'm going to keep repeating it. And that's why we have shorter working days. Uh, but maybe all of this just isn't enough to convince some of the pro-capitalist members of our audience and the proponents of so-called hustle culture. And if that's the case, I just want to make one final pitch. Do you really want to be like this guy? I get up around somewhere between six and eight, and then I work till 10, as, as hard as I can, flat out every single day. So, and I've been doing that for, with very little variation, although it's been much more extreme in the last year for like since 1985. Like I work probably, well, I work, I would say 14 hours a day. That video was from 2017, and I don't know if it was because of his all red meat diet or if it was because he was working insanely long hours or both, but he was hospitalized after that. Luckily, he's doing better. Obviously, I don't agree with Jordan Peterson on pretty much anything, uh, but I don't want people to get sick. I don't want people to be hurt, but maybe he should reconsider his long working hours because the sacrificial labor he's engaging in is actually really harming his health. And to be quite honest with you, it's not that impressive. Nando. Uh, you know, I joke a lot about like the rise and grind, you know, make that paper every single day, you know, all the time. And Megan Day wrote an article in Jacobin, I don't know if it was this week or, or, or last week, about... Um, the millennial generation in China, and it's like the exact opposite of this. They're doing like the exact opposite. They're like, uh, there's like this movement to like live minimalist lives in order to like work as less, like as least as possible. Like they have like no hope for the future. So they're just going to like, you know, consume as little as possible and and live as simply as possible. And like they literally just, they call it like the lie down movement or something where where they just kind of like, that's like their life, you know, because they're like opting out of hustle uh, culture, which like is very pervasive in you know not just you know obviously here but in in china when i was there um as well so it's it's just interesting like the react like the the reactions they're they're kind of flip side reactions to the same problem which is that we're all just overworked uh, all the time like we're working like crazy um and just spinning our wheels in 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 the hamster wheel but um yeah i had not i was not aware of this gary v guy i don't spend as much time i mean you're a, you're a you're a youtube native you know i don't spend yeah. as much time i need to do you know really cause this is where the real fights are you know <laughs> yeah um, well then don't get don't get involved right. that's not fun um right but i will say so the way I came across Gary Vee, and this is why I'm a little worried, like we don't get personal finance education in high school or college. I mean, yes, you can take a class in college, but if that's not your major, most students aren't going to do it. So 
I'm like, ah, I don't, I need to learn how to do some of this stuff. And so I started looking up some videos. Uh, mm. Don't do that. Don't look up videos don't. on YouTube. Bad idea. You're getting advice from people who have no idea what they're talking about. Try to find an actual professional to help you manage, you know, like your finances, whatever. But um, that's when I get came across Gary Vee and I was like, oh, this guy's got millions and millions of views on every video. Let me just check out what he has to say. He must be saying something right. And it's just a lot of like, yeah, bro, ask yourself, did yeah. you wake up early enough today? Yeah. Did you? Because if yeah. you didn't, you're going to fail. Like yeah. it's that kind of stuff. And it's like, yeah. shut the, you know. You know, I was reminded like a couple of years ago, there was a, a rash of articles that came out of this like trend to um, like hustle, 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 like in very short, consume nothing and and retire early for millennials. You know, like the fire movement. The fire movement. Yeah. Yes, I know but a lot about every, it. Every single one. And I looked it up while you were doing this segment because it made me think about it. But like every single one had a little nugget like this. OK, like this, this, this Vox piece profiles a, a woman named Rebecca who did this. She her goal was to like amass. Uh, $1 million of net worth by the end of 2019. Um, and she did this like over seven years. So she goes, the, the article writes, like, see if you catch the little, the little, the little nugget that, that is important here. So for seven years, Rebecca, who blogs under a pseudonym and asked that her real name be withheld for, to keep her financial information confidential, and her husband, a freelance musician, saved and saved and invested and saved. They made a combined low six-figure income, though the, his was sporadic and hers was steady. They also received two inheritances from her grandfather and father, money they put directly into their investment portfolio. They spent less on the less they spent on lattes, clothes, and new iPhones and the like, the sooner they could leave uh, the fluorescent nine to five life behind. Rebecca's goal to amass a net worth of one million dollars by the end of twenty nineteen. I wonder if the lifestyle was the major factor or the two inheritances that they got. Um I wonder if that had anything to do with it. Um but yeah, every single one had something like that. It was like, wait a minute. Like, it's not just about like eating, like drinking fewer lattes or whatever. It's like, just inherit it the old fashioned way. Yeah, no, totally. And and so I, I've been following and, and researching the fire movement for a few years now because I'm fascinated by it. And this, I, you're right. I mean, you run into the same issue over and over again, which is, Either the people who were able to succeed in accomplishing the early retirement were making insane amounts of money, like in Silicon Valley, or they got an inheritance. And then when you ask, like they, the, I guess the leaders of this movement, whenever they're asked, okay, well, what about people who are making like 40 grand a year living in a big city and they have no disposable income? And they always just make it seem like, no, well, they got to change their lifestyle. Like just eat like rice and beans every day. Uh, don't. Like live in a, like what what are the a shed that you buy yeah. from like Home Depot like but it's just like but live what about, in a WeWork like, have kids and, <laughs> yeah. yeah it's just ridiculous right and and that's not to say that you know you're completely powerless and you can't you know make moves for a better yeah. future it's just that you can't do it as an individual it needs to be done in a collective way by organizing labor that's how you fight for. Um, an actual like well-funded social security program. So you don't need to rely on 401ks and the whims of the stock market in order to retire. I mean, that's terrifying. Yeah. Um, but having your retirement so closely connected to the risks in the stock market is just awful. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I love this topic. It's, yeah. it's super interesting. Rise and grind, but, um, baby. Do we make that paper? Rise and grind.
rising. By the way, I I definitely bought into that. N- not necessarily hustle culture, but I remember being in high school and college thinking like, no, I'm going to work really, really hard. I'm going to work so hard and I'm going to succeed. And and then you go out into the real world and you're like, oh, there are many things kind of stacked against you that you have no control over as, again, yeah. as an individual. Yeah. No. It's... All right. Well, let's bring let's, um, yeah. Harvey K on uh, to talk to us about the 4th of July, about America, about liberty, independence. <laughs> <laughs> Professor K, thank you for joining us. Thank you. You guys depressed the hell out of me. I'm sorry. We're, we're cheery. That we're a lot of fun. The latter segment was, was crucial. I, I, but, but this hustle, Jesus Christ. Do you, uh, do you, do you wake yeah. up every morning, Professor, uh, at 6 a.m. and work flat out till 10 p.m. And, and, and rise and grind and make that paper I do, every day? I, I do wake up early, okay? Um, my, my wife is British, by the way, and I always used to accuse her of sort of cultivating the Puritan ethic in me. And, but over time, I was the one who started getting up earlier and earlier. And uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I always think that I'm a lazy guy and then everyone tells me, how can you be lazy given all this, the books and stuff? But yeah, I don't know. I, I Sorry. My problem is that uh, I don't believe in positivity, but I do believe. <laughs> but I think there is something genetic going on in me that leads me to smile more often than frown. Maybe. How's that? That's great. I, I like hate the, I mean, by the way. I hate the word positivity. It, it actually freaks me out. So. <laughs> I promise not to say it. <laughs> Gary V. That was what I really that Gary, Gary V. v should me. freak you out. Yeah. Gary V. freaks me out. I mean, that, that guy. Absolutely awful. So, I hope he does get a little more rest than he purports to. Because okay. yeah, but having complained about, about about how stressed I felt after that segment, I do want to say that I regularly do try and catch this show, and I used to watch it obviously when it was Anna and Michael, and I'm it's great to see you, Nando, and I think the show is just I think you guys I think actually I, I'm always amazed at how good the Jacobin shows are, and I just you know I, I marvel at them actually. So, well, I really I love the Jacobin that. shows. Yeah, I, I not just ours, obviously. Like, I love the Jacobin show, which I never miss because it's just yeah. really the only programming, with the exception of our show as well, um, that does an actual in-depth look at the topics that need an in-depth look. Yeah, um, and, and, so I, right. And in fact, you guys are really smart. In fact, I Googled, I, I thought I knew, I, I go, my wife also spent a lot of time in Spain. And and when you started talking about the uh, the UEFA matches, uh, Spain's our second choice. Okay, England's our first choice. Okay. But, well, they're least, playing in forty minutes. Yeah, you know, yeah, right, we'll exactly. get you out of here in time. Don't worry. No, that's, You'll that's be able okay. to catch the England, I'm gonna. I'm taping uh, it, so I'll catch it up. So. Oh, okay, but it's good <laughs> to see you guys. Thank you very much. Good to see you. you Let me ask you the first question um, because you know it is Fourth of July weekend. So talk to us a little bit as a historian. Talk to us a little bit about the real history of America's founding. Yeah, well, you know, I won't deny that all of the stuff of these last forty-five years that that basically is generally associated with the left, the left harangue of American history. You know, that somehow we're the promoters of simply the story of exploitation, oppression, imperialism. There, there is a certain truth in that. I'll just say that my own generation of historians who came in in the sixties and seventies, and you had on my dear friend some weeks or maybe months ago, Eric Foner. I'm pretty sure when we came into, into history, it was with the idea that we were going to redeem the the real story of America and we're going to change the narrative so that, for example, that 
Whereas conservatives always hyped the likes of Washington and, and Adams and so on, that we were going to bring out the story of especially my hero, Thomas Paine, but also of the way in which artisans and farmers and laborers and even slaves themselves pursued the question of freedom and equality in diverse ways and yet together ended up literally sort of launching a revolution, a revolution that to this day, I think, resonates and this is where I think we on the left sometimes lose touch with what would really empower us and working people. The, the, the original promise that was part of the revolution uh, stated so clearly in Thomas Paine's common sense, we have it in our power to begin the world over again, and then articulated, and undeniably, too many of them were slaveholders, but the promise itself transcended the pens that wrote it, um, you know, all the you know, truths that are self-evident, all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that became a promise that, that we, we, we tend to berate because of the fact that every time we succeed in, in creating some really democratic progress, we find ourselves immediately sort of pushed up against the wall and thrown back as we have these last 45 years in the wake of the struggles of the 60s. But it really is the case that, that we have to lay hold of that story, and we have to promote it as opposed to simply berate the story of America. Um, because in fact, most Americans still feel that original promise. You know, it's uh, my friend Bill Moyers said to me one time, he said, you know, it's a promise that, that we're the heirs of, whether we're native born or, or newly arrived. And it's amazing the degree to which immigrants themselves for all of the struggles and sufferings that so many times they endure, they really do pick up on that quickly. So if we go from the beginning, when the very first folks who laid hold of the promise of the Declaration actually were Black Americans in New England, who were then demanding their freedom based on that promise, and we think of it today as a promise that sort of beats within us, but is often neglected because conservatives do not want to remind Americans of that promise. Uh, liberals and even all too many progressives run from the story of America because it, they've already sort of bought into the argument that it's just one long story of tragedy and irony. And there's no doubt about the exploitation of oppression. But I do think that it's, it's crucial for us to, to literally grab hold of this and speak to Americans and let them know why they feel as they do. I mean, Americans are unhappy, dissatisfied. Hell, in 2016, the majority of Americans told pollsters they wanted radical action. So if, that, mm -hmm. if that's the case, then let's encourage Americans to understand why they feel that way, that to be an American is essentially to be a radical. And of course, the powers that be would do not want us to understand that, do not want us to recognize that. They probably get a kick out of the fact that hustle, hustle culture, you know, becomes so, 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 so current and, and, and so, if you like, uh, influential among young people. I mean, it's, it's tragic in that sense, too. So, yeah, we gotta, we've got to take hold of that promise. You know, I'll just put it this way. I know I'm talking longer than I should trying to overcome the stress <laughs> of the hustle culture, I think. No, um, no. I, I, I think it's the, this is the case. I mean, this is, the, to me, the, the really sorry part of that state of affairs we're in and the tragedy of Bernie not becoming president, perhaps, is that it, whenever Americans have confronted really mortal crises, crises in regards to the survival of the nation, or more, more importantly, the survival of the promise, historically, they found their way somehow to transcend their own 
faults and failings and to act in radical ways. That's how that's how the United States was for all, again for all of the faults and failings and the tragedy. It was the makings of a democratic republic. In the Civil War, the fact was that what enables the Civil War to turn out to be a Union victory is, first of all, that slaves in the South were pushing their way north as soon as Union troops were on the horizon. Northern farmers and, 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 and workers quickly discovered the evils of slavery as they encountered those very slaves who were running to their lines. And Lincoln himself, who always hated slavery and always wanted to abolish it, was empowered by these things and signs the Emancipation Proclamation. So how do we transcend the crisis of, of the Union? Literally, we bring an end to slavery, and people should realize that 250,000 Black troops, many of them, in fact, former slaves who'd come to the Union lines, joined the Union ranks, and it enabled Lincoln to win the Civil War on, you know, as leader of the Northern forces. So, and then if we think about the 1930s, I mean, the worst economic and social catastrophe in American history, and Americans found their way to to elect a president, Roosevelt, and with, with a new deal, and push Roosevelt to go even further than he might even have imagined going. So when we think about American history, what we've seen is that at our best, we are radical. And actually, we're in a crisis now, not unlike the 1770s, the 1860s, the 1930s. And somehow, you know, the powers that be, the, you know, the corporate rich and their conservative and neoliberal allies have done a damn good job, job of, of, of leading us into a kind of amnesia. I mean, all the forces are there. They've been there for a good decade, you know, uh, to create a remarkable, what was in the 30s called a popular front and literally from the bottom up, transform the nation. But They've smashed labor. Sorry, I'm going on and on. Let's talk. <laughs> well, um, you know, it's it's interesting to hear you talk about that because the the culture war right now is raging around this about uh, around history, really, yeah, um, right. around and around our understanding of history. Like on one side, you have kind of the liberal, um, or at least the new type of liberal understanding of our history, in which it's like. Um, you know, the 1619 thing where it's like, you know, uh, racism and white supremacy is 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 in everything, every aspect of our history, even the American Revolution was uh, was done in order to preserve slavery in, in, in the Americas. And then you have the on the other side, you have the conservative um, kind of view, which is like to just not to not want to talk about racism at all, that it's that, that, yeah. that it just doesn't yeah. it wasn't part of any of the stuff. Um I'm, you know, it, it seems like you you have a a, a different uh, take on how we should see our history um, and how we should embrace kind of the radical promise of America and some of the radical actions, which are the things that are erased the most out of history by both liberals and conservatives, is the sort of instances of real bottom up radical uh, popular movements. I mean, when you when you read about you know the sort of the, the creation of the labor movement in the, in the late 19th century. It's like unbelievable radicalism that you do not learn about at all ever in public schools uh, anywhere. Um, what are some of the, what are some of those radical things that are, that are erased that we should reclaim? Well, I'll, I'll give me a prime example. If I can use my, again, my hero, Thomas Paine. I mean, Thomas Paine's common sense. And th this is, this by the way, is a, a good example of what, people on the left really ought to be remembering. So pain arrives in America in, when there's already a massive rebellion underway, but the American 
the American farmers and, and workers of the day, they think they're fighting for the rights of, of, of the British, that they should be treated equal to their British cousins. And Payne arrives and realizes that Americans have already staged essentially a revolution. They've essentially thrown out the British authorities from towns and cities. They've organized their own committees to self-regulate their lives in commerce and education and other ways. And so when he writes common sense, not to tell them what he doesn't see them as in somehow failing to know what they should know. What he says is he's basically saying, you're failing to recognize what you yourselves are doing. And he holds up in common sense, essentially a mirror to them to show them they have it in their power to begin the world over again, because look at what they've already done. And it's noteworthy that a year before the, 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 the most important conservative intellectual of modern history, Edmund Burke, warned his colleagues in Parliament that if they pushed the Americans too far, the Americans might realize just how revolutionary they are. And this tells you something mm-hmm. else about conservatives. Burke warned them that if Americans realize what they've done, they're going to take the next step. And it's bad enough that we might lose the American colonies. More importantly, the Americans will set an example to the world and the entire world political and social order will be overturned. Now, not for nothing, from, from the time of Payne's death in 1809, actually even before his death, all the way through until essentially 1980, conservatives did everything in their power to suppress literally suppress the memory of Thomas Paine in the American story, whether it was in the school books, in public history. And the best, the best example I can give you of, of the proof of that is if the man who writes the pamphlet that really turns the American rebellion into a revolution and thus is, in essence, the godfather of the United States, has no monument on the National Mall in Washington, D.C., what does that tell you? Okay? So... Mm-hmm. And and then, but then to to add, if you like, I, irony to that tragedy is the guy who resurrects Thomas Paine, really beyond the light Roosevelt did to some extent, and other progressive Democrats in the wake of Roosevelt. But the guy who really grabs hold of Thomas Paine is Ronald Reagan, and what he does is he grabs hold of the, the most radical line of pain, which the liberal Democrats weren't even doing. And that line, again, is we have it in our power to begin the world over again. And in that fashion, in his 1980 Republican accept, acceptance speech of the Republican convention to be the presidential nominee for the party, in essence, he declares the Reagan revolution by grabbing hold of Thomas Paine. Now, talk about irony. So that what happens is over the next number of years, and now we're talking, what, 40 years later, it's more often the case, I'm willing to bet, that other than maybe the likes of me, that probably conservatives quote Thomas Paine more often than the left. And, and they do so, by the way, in anything but a radical way. They, they literally, in fact, sometimes invent words for Paine to defend, to defend the Second Amendment. All of it's half the time bullshit. But, but it is hmm. the case that the suppression of memory goes on and on and on. Another good example is probably the probably the most among the top leading figures in American history in the 20th century are two figures who barely gain a notice. And one is Eugene Debs. And the other one is a Philip Randolph, the Mm. black believer and civil rights leader. I mean, those are two figures who should also have monuments around the country, but it's a, it's a real struggle 
to get these people recognized. But those are just, in, those are, if you like, just individuals. I tell the story in my, in my book, Take Hold of Our History. In 2014, uh, a conservative school board was elected in um, one of the counties in Colorado. And these were hardcore conservatives. And they decided that they were going to drop the, the advanced placement test for American history in the local public high schools because the questions that were being posed were a little too progressive for their liking. So, so they did. They commanded that AP would be dropped and so on and so forth. But this tells you about what beats in the hearts and minds of Americans. The students themselves organized online, massive petition, and then chose a day and they turned up at school dressed as American radicals, radicals from the American past, and then in mass walked out of, out of their classes. So this is, this struggles, by the way, back in the 1990s, 19, in 1980s, before you guys were even born, I was working on this question of the new uh, right. Well, excuse the, me. I was born in 1985. Uh, the book, well, the book I'm thinking of that I worked on and the stuff was 1985. Okay. You're basically my younger daughter's age. How's that? Okay. So. I'm 86. So this is before I was born. Yeah. No, it's back in the, in the eighties, the conservatives went out of their way to try to literally clamp down on the teaching of U.S. history. In the nineties, I wrote a book. I, I hope you like the title. Why do ruling classes fear history? And yeah, and and next thing I know, this this has been going on for forty years, and this latest thing about you know the sixteen nineteen, pro, you know that kind of stuff. Which, by the way, I do not subscribe to the arguments of sixteen nineteen. Um, there, there's no no such thing as an American DNA that slavery is built into. I would rather we pay far <laughs> more attention to the struggles of African Americans in every fashion to liberate themselves and their fellow Americans along the way than to just harp only in a one-dimensional way on the question of slavery and racism. And I mean that, and I, I, I get a lot of criticism, but that's pretty much my view. Check out my uh, segment from two weeks ago on this very program. Yeah, I, I, I caught a piece of it. I mean, you, you guys are friends with Torre Reed, who's, who's a young friend of mine. He, he does a great job of doing these kinds of things. Adolf Reed is another friend, and you know we talk about this stuff. No, it's, it's the case that I think for the left, this is the, more, the most important point, I think for the left in particular, it's our task to start building a narrative that really highlights that the making of freedom, equality, and democracy is not going to depend on making people feel guilty. It's going to be reminding working people that freedom, equality, and democracy is pursued and won in struggle. Okay. That's the fun. I mean, that is the fundamental. And if they feel these kinds of impulses, towards doing so it's because it has been passed from one generation to the next in diverse ways and that in fact there is something of a democratic imperative in american life that conservatives do everything that conservatives and the corporate rich do everything they can to suppress or to distract us from and the, the more effective we can the more effective we are in, in enabling americans to understand why they feel as they do that they actually do carry if you like a sort of deep cultural memory of this kind of what it means to be an American, whether they're newly arrived or native born, as I said, whether they're black, white, brown, whatever language they spoke as a child, there is something fundamental about this. And 
you know, I'm going to use a word which people don't like to hear, especially on the left, but it actually is a rather exceptional feature of American life, this American promise. Look, every nation has its radicalism and its struggles from below and, 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 and class war goes on globally. But it is the case that ideas do matter. And it also matters that from one generation to the next, we somehow imbue Americans with an understanding as to why it is that the way things are is not the way they have to be and why they fundamentally know that. Yeah, I mean, I like I like that mostly because it actually empowers people, right? I think a lot right. of the narrative that we we see in our media is one that's specifically meant to disempower people and feel like, well, this is the system. It is how it is and you can't change it. But if you look at our history, um, things have changed as a result of the radicalism you're talking right. about. I wanted to read um, these quotes from Michael Harrington. He's the founder of DSA. Yeah. Um, and he it's from Fragments of the Century. And he's specifically referring to the United States. He says, it was as a socialist and because I was a socialist that I fell in love with America. In saying that I am not indulging in romantic nostalgia about youthful days on the road, but rather underlying a crucial political truth. If the left wants to change this country because it hates it, then the people will never listen to the left and the people will be right. To be a socialist is to sense... Um, is to sense the seed beneath the snow, to see beneath the veneer of corruption and meanness and the commercialization of human relationships, men and women capable of controlling their own destinies. And yeah, I mean, that's such an empowering yeah. message. Yeah, I, I, it's one of the, I've got a whole bunch of quotes on my wall. I, I, when I read that, I, I, hadn't, I did not read that. I read it years and years ago, but I was reminded of it sometime in the past couple of years. Yeah, and I, I mean, my, Michael was was phenomenal uh, figure himself, and as the founder of DSOC and DSA, and uh, and his death was a loss for the left. But he's so right; that's so much to the point. I mean, I mean, if we're going to be socialists, it means that we believe in democracy, and if we don't, if we believe that that the struggle is about enhancing freedom, equality, and democracy, then we can't believe for a moment that we know what other people don't. We rather have to believe that our task is to. I'm not going to use the word awaken. I won't do that. Okay. We need to encourage people to understand why they feel as they do. And, you know, actually there's a quote from Marx and I'll, I won't remember it properly right now, but in 1843, and too often people think Marx begins in 1844, but in 1843, he made the observation mm -hmm. that really the struggle is about realizing the dreams of the past. And I, I'm not telling us we should limit our imaginations to the past, but I do think what Marx was realizing is that there is, there is this sort of this something about being human where in every generation, whether you're American or not, and around the world, there are these aspirations. One of the things that empowers us as Americans in particular is this, this promise about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I'll just, I'll bring in another radical figure, Frederick Douglass. I don't know if you've ever read What to the Slave is the Fourth of July. It's a really remarkable sermon he gave on, I think it was July 5th of 1852 to a predominantly white audience of abolitionists. And most people read that and never really finish the speech or sermon. And he's lambasting America for its failure, its failure to live up to its own ideals. And he's just, it, he's berating the United States. And I always, I used to have my students read and I'd say, tell me, is Douglas a patriot or an antagonist? 
of the United States. And I always knew the answer was simple. If they stopped reading midway through and said he was an antagonist, they failed. Okay. If they made it to the end, the answer was waiting for them in the last couple of pages where Douglas basically says, for everything I have said, there is this promise that we can realize. And what's interesting with Douglas is you think, well, how can he possibly embrace something written by the slaveholders, such as Jefferson in particular? But Douglas came to realize, as I think I said early on, that the promise transcended the pen. Okay, that was the fundamental agreement at the beginning. And if we're going to if we're going to only rely on the author, then we're in trouble. And it's the promise that we carry, not the author that we carry with us. Mm. So you have to separate the art from the artist. Uh, Good way of putting it. Say. Um, no, that's interesting. Um, I, I, I guess w- one thing I would want to ask you, um, and maybe this could be helpful for the viewers at home, um, you know, outside of your work, obviously, like if there was one kind of one figure that they should learn about um, or one, you know, one book to read or or one episode in American history that they should kind of um, learn about to really understand what you're talking about, like, what would that be? Is it Debs or is it something else? Or, you know, what 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 kind of story about America that you think captures that that radical spirit? That that that's a really great question. And okay, so and as since you've since uh, you canceled my ability to refer to my own books on this instance, no, well, um, you know no, that's no, obvious. No, that's no. a given. Will, that's a given. I'll tell you something. I, I'm going to start. I'm going to start with a Jacobin item. Okay, mm. or actually, it was the Gravel Institute, the kids at Gravel who got Matt Carp mm. to do you know about the story, the real story of the Civil War. Uh, if anybody wants to start without reading. Watch the short video that Matt did on the Civil War, that how explaining that the Civil War was a major left revolution, you know, that slaves and others really carried out a revolution. Start there. Maybe that'll lead you to a, a whole set of, of related kinds of ideas and books. But if I would really say Thomas Paine is, is the guy you start with, um, along the way, I mean, you've got. I don't leave out presidents, by the way. Abraham Lincoln and FDR needs need to be included. Uh, who, who, who's really good? Um, Deb, you know, I like speeches. I would tell people to go get some speeches by Debs. You know, Debs, mm. Debs had Debs had three heroes: Thomas Paine, um, Patrick Henry, and Jesus. Those were his three heroes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and but and if you read Debs, everyone thinks that Debs gave up America when he became a socialist after he was released from prison after the after the, the great strikes in, in 1894, the Pullman strikes and all that. But Debs fundamentally embraced Paine all the more after that. So I, I see this kind of tradition that goes from Thomas Paine to Elizabeth Cady Stanton, the great, great feminist leader, to Abraham Lincoln, to Frederick Douglass, to Eugene Debs. To uh, oh, who's some other? Good? And then we can come up to Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt, A. Philip Randolph. I mean, there's this great lineage, you might say, that they belong to us. And and, yeah. if, and I would urge people to read their speeches. I I love speeches. I think that they're, we're we're underestimating them. We haven't had speech makers like that in in decades. I mean, people talked about Barack Obama as a, nah. as a great speaker. <laughs> uh, nobody nah. even remembers he was a, great a single delivery. word he said. 
What's that? The delivery was great. Exactly. But if you actually read some of this stuff, it's just banal crap. There was just nothing there. It was all just uh, that, the wishy-washy exactly. crap. There was, in fact, in some cases, he actually told people, you know, he told people, yes, we can at these rallies. And then he turned around and blamed all Americans, not the corporate rich, for the entire crisis of 2007, 8, and 9, and 10, and all of that. No, I mean, uh, talk about uh, abysmal. Um, so. <laughs> No, I, and by the way, if Bernie could really give a great speech, maybe we'd have been better off. Period. But you know, <laughs> what am I going to say? So I like speeches. Um, you know, it's funny. I if, I should. I used to require readings when I I just retired this past year. I didn't want to teach online, so I I retired. But there, there are mm-hmm. so many good books. Eric Foner, by the way, who you had on, this, this dear friend. Eric Foner's stuff around the Civil War is just phenomenal. Uh, James Oakes, I believe, has a really great book. If people like biography a bit, it's called The Radical and the Republican. And it's about the relationship between Douglas and Lincoln and, mm. and the dynamic, if you'll excuse the Marxist way of putting it, the dialectic that really existed Ooh. between these two men. And I, I think that's you, one you of will the never finest... have to excuse, excuse the Marxist use of anything on this program. No, I realize. I, totally. I do realize. And by the way, if I can just mention, maybe in the fall, you guys have me back on. So my very first book was the British Marxist historians, E.P. Thompson, Eric Hobson mm. and all that. And it's never really been out of print, but it's coming out anew this fall with zero books. So, you know, we can, could have a good time with that too. You'll excuse my pushing for that. Sure. Not I at all. Not no, no, I'm got, thank Not you for doing that. We'd love to have you on. Um, you know, uh, you're obviously right. Um, and what can I, I'm, I'm going to quote you and I, on my next book. You're yeah, gonna, yes. it's going to be on the blur. You're obviously right. No, but as you're talking, I mean, I'm thinking about how do we get this message out there, right? I mean, not just among people who already agree with us. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I feel like right now uh, socialists in America are pretty insular, um, and also, unfortunately, there's a lot of infighting as well. I'm, I'm yeah. trying to think about how under the structures, the media structures that we're operating in, how do we get this message out there to a broader audience, right? Because right now we're doing this show on YouTube, for instance, and yeah. we fall prey to YouTube's algorithms. And I'll let you know that this video is not going to do that great like in terms of views, right? Which is really unfortunate because they have algorithms that intentionally suppress this kind yeah, of content, sure. right? So yeah. how do we think outside the box to get the message out there? Okay, well, you know, over a year ago, I was talking, one time I, I was talking to Nomi Key about this and I said, you know, there's this really amazing sort of flourishing right now by way of originally podcasts and now YouTube of progressive left what's called left of left shows mm-hmm. but among the things that are missing in these left shows and i and by the way this is not true for for jacobin stuff as much as in any way but it's true for t- all too many things is that we really have to figure out a way without being pedantic about it of bringing in the kind of radical story Okay, mm-hmm. to bring it in. So it's not like I'm not so sure we, you know, sorry, I'm, let me talk as if I was a producer for a moment. I'm not sure, sure. so sure that I'd say, let's have a five minute segment, you know, each week on, say, weekends. Oh, it's not the worst idea of, say, uh, you know, uh, was it Paul? Paul uh, from Wednesday nights, he does a good job on, uh, he does a good job, I think, introducing labor figures i I believe we could you know so if it's a segment or just generally a conversation or 
you have this Verso book club, okay? By the way, which by the by the way is modeled after the, what was called the Left Book Club back in the 30s in Britain, and then it, and it's great to see that happening. Um, so I I think the idea is you 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 put it in there. The other thing is, and you'll excuse my referring to the other half of your life, Anna, but obviously I've you know I'm friends with Jenk and and I know Ben for quite some time, and we're friends. And it would be great if even folks like it at uh, the Young Turks did a little more around these kinds of historical questions. And mm-hmm. so it's a matter of cultivating it. And beyond that, I mean, what other miracles could we see happening? I don't know. I heard you guys are doing a production meeting. So I yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah the I, I figured if I use the word producer, I could mm. bring you in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, I like your idea because it doesn't involve me doing dances on TikTok. So that's what I'm <laughs> yes. trying to avoid as much as I can. Yeah. That's I only fair. get those in private on the text message. You know, that's oh. not for the world to see. Oh, that's the direct message between you two. I don't get those messages. No, you don't get those either, Anna. It's too too hot for you. You can't handle <laughs> you know, it. I mean, it's, yeah, it's not totally consensual. This, I don't know if I should pull out now that Kale's in for the last bit, but but I do want no, to say, no, no. okay, I do want to say that uh, you know, uh, Michael and I were were. I even now I can't do it. But but Michael Michael brought in so much of that kind of historical stuff. In fact, I was always amazed when he would, when he got really interested in having me on regularly because I, I I wasn't doing the kind of internationalist stuff that he wanted. But but I you can see on Jacobin that kind of sensibility. And by the way, I mean the magazine is is fabulous. Um, it it's doing stuff that New Left Review lost touch with years ago, which is which really was a shame. So. The, the makings are there. The question is, how do you break out of that? And I, you'll excuse me, Kale, for saying, I mean, I've had conversation with Kale, and I know there are plans underway to really, you know, create video of a historical sort and a contemporary sort. And that's, you know, it's like the what is to be done. And that's one of the places to start. And basically, mm-hmm. everyone has to learn to tweet things to death. You know, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure Nando and, and Anna, but especially Nando, you were very good in retweeting. Every 90 minutes, I figured out a way to say, hey, I'm going to be on weekends. You know. Yeah. Are you watching Gary V videos? Are yeah, you getting yeah, some tips yeah. on the social always media be, posts? <laughs> always be self-promoting. Uh, that's great. Um, no, I, 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 I'm with you on I mean, I studied history. I mean, I'm, I'm obsessed with history. I studied history in college. Um, it's, it's, um, it's a tool that I use because I'm not confident in my ability to interpret the present. You know what I mean? Um, I think that like these people that just kind of see current events and they're just like, this is what I think about this without like first, like going like, let me, let me see like what the, what the past tells me about this. Um, I I find to be uh, always very, I'm always very suspicious of them. You know, the, 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 the past gives you a blueprint, which doesn't necessarily mean totally. that you have to be stuck in it. Yeah. And it's, right. and it's, you know, you should use it as a tool to remake the future. I think that when you mentioned Michael, that's something that he, that he used the past for a lot, which, and I think pretty self-consciously, yeah. um, you know, yeah. that's why he studied, um, you know, all the revolutionary leaders uh, all over the world. He was like, how the, how the fuck did those guys do it? I want to do it here. You know, like how yeah. do the, how do these fucking guys in Africa do it? How do these guys in Latin America do it? Um, you know, like let's, let's, let's get some information and some tools on uh, from them on how we can do it here now. Um, this, this, 
the what I think frustrates me and a lot of other people about the sort of the, the this new liberal understanding of history is that it's a paralyzing understanding of history. Yes, it's, it's a understanding of history that does not give you the tools to change the present. It only gives you a, it only gives you a sense of hopelessness and yes. that change is impossible. Um, right. And I find that to be an incredibly dangerous thing. I mean, you know, obviously don't buy the right wing arguments against all this stuff, but, you know, there are arguments against it. Yeah. You know, a whole bunch of historical quotes fl flew into my head as you were speaking. And I'll just I'll, one of these is this. I mean, Anna said a little while ago, this is not 1776 America. I mean, it's, it's not. This is not 1861 United States, and we're not 1932 Depression era America. We're in a crisis of that sort, but we but we have resources and we have a place to start that those people didn't have. So, for example, we've we've had a revolution. We've had a second revolution. We've had, the, in essence, a, a sort of set of revolutionary changes in the 1930s. We've had the 60s civil rights struggle, which some people actually called a, a second or third American revolution. We've, so now we shouldn't have to, we don't have to worry specifically about Jim Crow. We have to worry about a return to that kind of stuff, but we are already beyond that. As we saw a year ago in the Black Lives Matter street protests, we're mm. beyond where those folks were. But the first thing we should not forget is the reason we turn out as we do like that is because we know it is, I'm going to use a term I don't like using because it, you know, sort of represents something else, but it is un-American to accept the way things are. And there's a, there's a, there was a writer, a journalist um, out of Chicago, 1900, named uh, Henry, Henry Demers Lloyd. And he said, uh, if there was an old statement, some people thought was Patrick Henry's, it went something like, you know, the price of liberty is eternal vigilance or something like that. And he said, no, he said, the price of liberty or democracy is that if you want to defend the rights you've been afforded, you have to create new rights for your children. In other words, you can't assume that history has ever come to an end. You've accomplished. The fact is that whatever powers that be may prevail, they're going to come back and, and come after you. The struggle goes on. But it also means as we look back, we've seen the development of these rights. We Look, if the, if the corporate rich and the right, or even neoliberals, I mean, what's his name? Joe Biden was pushing for cutting back on Medicare, cutting back on social security, the word entitlements, despicable term. Okay. But we, <laughs> but Americans won't accept it. And which is why right now, sorry, can I give a little pitch for what I think Biden ought to do? I mean, I'm not, I have no hope in all of this, but if let's suppose I get, he watch, he's watching right now. I, yeah, he should be so lucky. Um, not us. He should be so lucky. Um, it's 4th of July weekend. He wants to watch or think about happy things, not negative things like yeah. war in <laughs> Afghanistan. Yeah. <laughs> Well, what I was going to say is that um, I don't know what I was going to say. I lost my train of thought. But we, we, the oh, blueprint sorry. for Biden. What was what's Biden supposed to do if he's watching? Okay, well, let's suppose we look. The, the filibuster is fucking us. Up. Sorry, that's the word. That's you the can moment, cuss right? on this program. It's okay. okay. Okay, that was one of the beauties of uh, of the YouTube shows until all these things started kicking in. I guess. Um, what was the case that that uh, you could. I want to put this properly, okay? 
if he, if look, we're not going to get the pro act and we're not going to get for the people unless there's some miracle occurs to bring down the filibuster, but we can get a major infrastructure plan. And, and if in fact we get that, then the real quest, the real test of Biden is going to be the executive pen, the executive authority. And there are three things he has to do. And if he doesn't do it, then we're screwed in the end. And that is he needs to sign an executive order that says any dollars expended for infrastructure that go into paying workers, those workers must be guaranteed health care. Two, they must be guaranteed at least, I mean, at least a $15 an hour minimum wage. And third, they must be guaranteed collective bargaining rights. Now, when you give people, when you afford people what they want and what they've been fighting for, when they secure it, they're going to fight to hold on to it. And the question is, is he willing to empower working people, even whatever millions of folks get involved in this project, will he empower them to fight as well? Uh, or another way of looking at it is a real political leader doesn't say, I want to fight for you, vote for me. He encourages the fight in you, okay? And which is what distinguished Bernie from the whole crowd of his, you know, people on the stage in the Democratic uh, debates. That, that's the key, right? So what I'm getting at is it's not over yet, okay? It's not over yet. And in these next several months, to whatever extent the left has any capacity to, to encourage political change, that, that we really do need to sustain a certain element of possibility in our minds and even, and even hope, and that affords action. And um, I, by the way, and to, to drive home my point, FDR in 1935 got this huge spending bill through Congress. And he knew that Americans needed a second new deal. And he used the executive pen to create the Works Progress Administration, which included all of the famous arts projects, music projects, and so on. But all the more importantly, brought millions of workers who were unemployed onto the federal payrolls and transformed the American landscape. So we'll see what we do. Professor I'm trying Kay, to stick too much best. in. Sorry, I'm, I'm overloading the show. No, that was so no, good. No. I, I mean, it's already noon here in L.A., and I didn't even realize that it was noon. because Time was flying by. Interview's been yeah. so great. Yeah, time flies no, by. Thanks. Um, so Anna, you and I hopefully- had, were far too long in finally, finally getting to meet, I think. You know, I was at the yeah. I was at the Young Turks a year and a half ago with to, to see Jenk and do a, an interview. We walked right by each other. But I and I, I it was my fault that I didn't stop you at that time. So, yeah, you should have said hello. But I yeah. love the idea that you have. Um, and like, to be fair to me, I have definitely tried to bring in like this is one of the reasons why I love doing this show. I'm trying to bring in what we're doing here and like try to mix it with what TYT has been doing, because I think Mm -hmm. that this perspective is so important and I think it's the winning perspective. Um, So Professor K, thank you again. And hopefully you'll be on with us again soon. Thank you very much. Nando and I, you guys are great. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Okay. The main takeaway is tweet. Twitter is real life. Tweet more. Kale, you heard it from the Professor K. You have to get on Twitter and just don't stop tweeting. People don't want that. It's it's gonna. I'm gonna get banned too quickly. So you can. You can either are saying mi- they want kale. Either you get minimal Twitter hear. kale, or you get like just 
the most horrific, just canceled in, in 10 minutes. So you're Latinx, you can't be canceled. <laughs> you, you, you'd be surprised. Um, All right, Lin-Manuel Miranda just got canceled and he's Latinx. So there you go. Did you see um, he got canceled? Oh, yeah. For what? Yeah, we did a whole thing on Woke Bros about it. Um, for casting Afro Latinos in, in the Heights that were too light skinned. <laughs> Are you serious? That's what he got canceled for? Yeah. Okay. I I prefer uh, Eileen Jones' take. Uh, In the Heights is the most boring movie I of the year. I saw that. <laughs> <It's really funny. laughs> the yeah. rules. I love Eileen. <laughs> yeah. um, but anyways, All right. Now is super chat time. So yeah. send in your super chats. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so there is one right now, hard-hitting question that I'm going to start us off with. Uh, Electric sent us $17.76 to ask us, how are you all planning to spend the rest of the 4th of July weekend, fireworks, barbecue, watching the Indy 500, or plotting to bring about the end of late-stage capitalism? Anything like that? What are you guys doing? They, they want um, to know, a little know bit about your of life. the last thing in this show, so yeah. let's just check I'm, that off. Okay, I've already done my you know. bit. Yeah, um, um, I will. I'm definitely going to be barbecuing. I made pizza last night in my pizza oven, which was very fun. Um, and um, we're going to be barbecuing today, tonight. Um, and I hope to finish uh, Quentin Tarantino's novel, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's actually really good. Like it's really fun. Um, so uh, I started reading it and. Uh, got sucked in big time. So I think I'm going to finish it this weekend. Sounds nice. nice. Um, I'm going to be with family, uh, which I'm excited about. I haven't seen my nieces in about a week. I like to see them more than that. And we're going to be doing an Armenian barbecue. Uh, but what I'm probably going to be spending. Wait, what's in an Armenian, doing... what's in an Armenian barbecue? Explain what, what Kabob, you know, some, are. Right now, my family's on a, a lamb chop kick, so we grill lamb wow. chops a lot. Mm. Um, and, of course, like shish kebab, all of that stuff. So That's it's a great. lot of food. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I'm, I love barbecuing at my parents' house. And then, but the thing I'm probably going to be doing the most of is consoling my dog as he's panicking from fireworks. It's, uh. like, not fun. Yeah. By the way, Nando, you have... You're a new dad, new dog owner. Yes. Um, are there like fireworks yet in in Venice? I don't know. I actually haven't even thought about it. Um, I'm now you're making me think that maybe my dog will have a panic attack. Um, we were actually planning on leaving her here while we went to a Fourth of July party uh, tomorrow. So maybe mm. now now I'm starting to doubt whether I should do that. I'm- <laughs> No, I, that might actually be a better idea because if like if I take my dog to my parents' house tomorrow, he's not really in a place he feels safe. Right. And you don't hear the fireworks as much where I'm at. So that I don't know. It's up to you. But yeah, dogs panic. It's like the most annoying thing ever um, when Damn. people start the fireworks like a month ahead of time mm-hmm. and then throughout the rest of the month. Mm. Got to get the doggy panic room. Got to. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I'll probably be at the beach, uh, New York, um, Rockaway. Probably. Do people go to Jones beach? Yeah. Um, I mean, like, I, I think like, I mean, there's a ton of people at the beach right now because everyone's just been dying to get out of the house. So, um, all the beaches are packed and tomorrow's. Do you get tan or do you get red? I 
get red in IPL. <laughs> I'm just it sucks. <laughs> the picture of you in Cuba getting all all peeled is 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 the most insane thing I've ever seen. It's pretty gross. That's like that's like day after coming back from Cuba, and it just like oh. I just have like a map of um like Europa, like the one continent, like on my back, just like skin feeling. It's yeah, it's on the Patreon, so you guys should it's go on your only subscribe fans. to the Patreon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's uh, in the in the description. Sign up for the Patreon. We're going to be doing a lot more in there pretty soon. Um, you will not get that photo, but uh, you know, we'll see. We'll see how much you guys pay. Um, <laughs> uh, okay, I guess there's just one more super chat um, just to kind of top us off on this question of hustle culture. Um, Champagne communist asking us, do you think the motto of if you don't work, you don't eat is behind a lot of the hustle culture mentality is Michelangelo, uh, Caldeas, Wagner and Shakespeare not entitled to eat? Um, yeah, I mean, it's a similar mentality. Yeah. Def- I mean, I don't know if that's in the hearts and minds of the people who keep recycling the same propaganda um, to placate workers. But yeah, I mean, this idea that certain things aren't just a human right is ridiculous, right? So food, shelter, water, like these are things we need to survive and they shouldn't be considered, um, you know, things that we have to like fight for or work for. Uh, In a capitalist society, it unfortunately is. These are all things that we do have to work for and fight for. Yeah. What's the Marx quote, Kale? Like, you know, Fish during the day, write poetry at night, or the, what is it? How does it go? Yeah, it's, you know it? it's the yeah, yeah. It's, it's like the this is the younger, uh, more poetic, slightly more idealistic Marx, where he's saying, you know, that the the better society that he's calling communism or socialism um, will involve, uh, you know, you'll have the ability to fish in the morning, uh, herd cattle during the day. Um, uh, right in the evening and, you know, debate politics after, after dinner, uh, without ever having to become a fisherman, uh, you know, a, a rancher, a writer or a debater, you know, it's just, the point is that like in capitalism, what you do, uh, you have to specialize in order to make it on the market. Like if you are going to make a living, you have to do one thing and you have to sell your ability to do that one thing typically to one employer, although obviously it's more and more, it could be multiple employers, could be you could be like on TaskRabbit and having to you know do that one thing for a bunch of people you sometimes you end up doing a lot of different things for a lot of different people and so it's kind of you know capitalism like Jeff Goldblum says finds a way and uh you know that's um, that's not what he says you liar but uh <laughs> I mean it, I, what I find remarkable is just how how like internalized uh the hustle the hustle culture is in a lot of people um it's really been it's really beaten into uh, American workers because of like what we talk about that they have to compete you know with each other um, totally. so they they internalize that thing when they I'll never forget it when, like when it was 15 years ago 10 15 years ago when France uh, reduced the work week to 35 hours and like just widespread derision in America and I'm like totally. you guys have it all totally. wrong you know they have it right totally <laughs> you know? well ultimately. I think the question is just like, what is the, what is the moral justification for having a 40 hour work week versus a 35 or a 10 hour work week? Like why, why pick just one number over we the do other? It. Yeah. It's just well, the way we do it. But there's no moral reason why we do it. It's not because it's no. better. It's because it ends up 
providing more profit to capitalists if you can squeeze more effort out of workers. Like there is no other justification for why we work so hard so long under such like awful conditions uh, and under so much stress and anxiety, like needing to constantly sell ourselves and sell ourselves again, sometimes to the same boss. So we have to keep it like showing, you know, I'm going to do better today. I'm going to do even better tomorrow. uh, Because if you don't do that, uh, your boss has the ability to replace you whenever they find it makes more sense to to get someone who is pitching even harder, saying, I'm going to work even harder. And, uh, and you know, I, maybe I don't need the benefits that your current employees have or something. So, uh, yeah. And one other thing I want to add, and I know I mentioned it in the segment, but I, I want to reiterate um, since so many people have internalized hustle culture, I mean, just think about what that leads to in the workplace, right? And it's the thing that I can't stand the most, which is everyone keeping tabs on each other as part of this competition, right? So it, it leads to a lot of shame or guilt if we do listen to our bodies or we do listen to like our actual needs and just like take a load off, right? I remember one thing that I don't think I'll ever forget I needed a day off last week, uh, not last week, last year, because I was targeted by a hacker and I needed just a day. It was so mentally exhausting to mm-hmm. like deal with my job. And then on top of that, try to secure my accounts. It was whack-a-mole throughout the entire thing. And then finally I was like, I can't do this. I need to take a day off to like deal with this and not have anything else on my plate. And I felt guilty about that. Like I felt so awful about mm-hmm. needing to do that. And I had to talk myself out of, feeling like a piece of shit for taking a day off, you know? Um, but mm-hmm. that's what that's what hustle culture, internalized hustle culture leads to. This like ridiculous self-loathing or guilt or whatever, shame. And it's, don't feel that way. Don't buy right. into that. Mm. Well, I, for a lot of people, uh, if they take a day off, it might just mean that their boss is going to fire them. Like a lot of like, totally. especially like minimum wage workers, like that's, um, so it's like, it's just these layers that are compounded of like, you know, the system is structured so that, you know, your boss has the power and then you're made to feel like a piece of shit during that process. And uh, it's, I mean, it's just, it's so cruel. It's so evil. Um, and then, and then of course, as Nando and I were just talking about this the other night, that like, then on top of all of this, the latest round of things is that not only does the HR people, uh, do they scold you just for whatever reason, now they force you into diversity trainings, they force you into anti-racist trainings and they say, not only do you, you know, get your ass kicked every single day here, but you're also morally bad because you have a bad thought in your head. Like, and we're going to get you to say something. You're going to admit to saying, you know, that you've had a racist thought or a bad thought or something. And then when it comes time to arbitrarily get rid of you, because we found, you know, we can probably get someone else for basically a, a better bargain on a worker from the capitalist standpoint, they can then say, yeah, you know, you, um, you admitted to us that you're racist. So, like it's just it just keeps getting worse um and uh and that's you know and the problem is that like because workers have so little power the fact that it's getting worse doesn't mean that you know you could you could argue well if it's getting worse then they will not fight back because it's you know it's just so much harder to deal with but it's not a it's not a question of like interests like they have the interests of having a far better workplace and society but they don't have the capacity. And that's ultimately what we have to try to engender. That's like the point of political organizing is to try to create greater political capacity on the part of working people. Great. Well, 
Ryan appreciates us and we appreciate you, Ryan. Thank you. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks, Ryan. And um, and as LJ says, weekends doesn't get to eat until Saturday afternoon. That goes for That's all right. three of us. Um, yes. And on that note, uh, we are going to eat. So uh, thanks for the super chats. Uh, we appreciate all of you. And we appreciate the people who aren't sending super chats. We see you. I'm looking at every single comment right now. <laughs> Uh, And you can share the stream. That's a really great way to support what we're doing and get more people watching um, this program, you know, Uh, and don't just send it to your socialist friends, send it to people who might disagree with the content. Um, Because I think we do a pretty good job in creating like a welcoming environment for everyone. I'll debate any I'll debate any of them to death. I'll destroy them with my superior arguments. Mm -hmm. Nando's got a big brain. Look at that guy. He does have a big brain, but Nando's not really the conflict type of guy. Like, I don't see you being a debate bro ever, but who knows? Maybe. (laughs) Uh, Like, hit subscribe, share us, and uh, have a good fourth. Enjoy the weekend. Thank you, Kale. All right, right. folks. Thank you so much for watching um, and have a happy fourth of July. I will be out next week. Just wanted to give you guys that note. It is my birthday weekend, so my husband's planning something. I don't know what, but I'm excited. Um, But Nando will be here. Do you really? No, no, I don't. I don't. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, anyway, but thank you so much for watching, guys. Have a great 4th of July, and we'll see you next weekend.